Well, good morning. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is John Huff. I'm one of the elders here at Covenant Life, and it is my honor to preach to you God's word today from 1 Timothy. If you haven't already turned there, I would encourage you to do so. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in front of you. Uh, there may be two in front of you. We'll be uh, preaching out of the ESV. If you are visiting with us, welcome. We are glad you're here with us. Uh, maybe this is your first time, and if so, you're wondering where the pastor is. Well, he's on vacation, and uh, it's kind of a relay race of sorts of preaching in his absence. So last week, Nick preached, passed the baton to me, and uh, next week, Ronnie will be preaching for us. And then the uh, anchor leg will be J-pop as long as he doesn't pull a leg muscle. So if you don't know about that, ask Jay. He'll tell you. Uh, but it is an honor to be able to preach God's word to you and uh, looking forward to it. This passage has been so rich and helpful for my soul as I've been meditating on it in the weeks leading up to today. I love this church. There's a long list of reasons for why I do. Uh, but let me share a couple of them with you. One of the many things that I love about our church is our commitment to expositional preaching. Uh, expositional preaching, a simple definition of that is the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. And we believe the best way to preach expositionally uh, is to walk through books of the Bible. So rather than just kind of parachute into different texts from week to week, uh, we go through books of the Bible. By doing so, we gain a deeper understanding of God's Word, and then we also allow the text before us to set the agenda for what will be preached each week. Not only do I love that we are committed to expositional preaching, but I love that we are committed to Christ-centered expositional preaching. After his resurrection, Luke 24, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus. Uh, he met two men. They were confused. Their hopeful redeemer, this Jesus of Nazareth, who they didn't even recognize was walking with him, uh, they had understood that he had been crucified, was buried, and now there's this talk about his resurrection. And they're still trying to figure it all out. And Jesus confronts them. And he says, O foolish ones, Luke 24, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If you didn't catch that, Jesus is taking these men who are confused trying to understand the gospel, and he's saying, why do you not understand this? Look back at all of the Old Testament. It's all pointing to me. And it was through that that God opened up their eyes. So when we think about how we should interpret scripture, when we think about how we should preach scripture, we want to do it like Jesus did. I've seen him at the center of it all, I've seen every passage ultimately as pointing to him. We want to see each text with our gospel glasses on. While it may be difficult to see Christ in every text, I don't think you'll find it difficult to do so today. Now, this is a gospel-rich passage. Uh, last month, my wife and I were celebrating 20, year, 20 years married, 20-year wedding anniversary. Thank you. And so we decided to take the kids. We went out west, never been out there before, uh, wanted to go see some of the big parks. And uh, our first stop after flying in to, to Vegas, spending the night, taking off the next morning, was to drive to the Grand Canyon. 
And you hear about the Grand Canyon all your life. If you've never been there like me, you show up and it's just, wow, the, the immensity of it, the grandeur, right, of this such a beautiful spot to try and take it all in. You take pictures and it doesn't do it any justice. And so we're there, our kids, uh, they're just amazed by it as well. We wanted to see the sunset in the canyon. We arrived in the late afternoon after a long day of traveling, and you go from that first immediate, wow, this is so unbelievably beautiful, to the kids starting to get a little bit colder now because the sun's setting, and uh, it's dinner time, and they're talking about it's, they're getting hungry, and uh, after a long day traveling, they're getting a little tired too, and they're, they're right there beside the Grand Canyon, but they're thinking about uh, the pool at the hotel, right? <laughs> And if they're getting pizza for dinner. And I think sometimes we do the same thing with the gospel. The gospel is right there in front of us. And it's like, yeah, that's amazing. And we're ready to move on to something else. We don't want to do that. I pray we don't do that. If you are visiting with us, maybe you've come a couple of weeks and you keep hearing this theme over and over, uh, praise God for it. That theme is Christ crucified. It's the gospel We don't move on from it. We don't graduate from it. We keep coming back to it, and that's what this text will do for us today. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, what a privilege it is to gather together with your people. Uh, Truly, the highlight of our week is corporate worship, where we are edified, encouraged, built up, thinking about you, your word, what you have done through us for Christ, singing songs of worship to you, hearing testimonies of how you have worked in other believers to bring them to faith. God, I pray that you would continue to do so today. God, I pray for every individual here in the main hall, in the East Hall, those that will listen to the sermon later because they're in CLK. God, I pray that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes. You promised to do so. I pray that it would bear fruit. I pray for the young child in here this morning who, whose legs aren't even long enough to reach the floor right now, who may be doodling and playing, waiting for the time they can rush out to the playground. God, I pray that the seeds sown by your word, even this morning, would take root and find soft soil that you have prepared, that, that you would bring them to faith. God, I pray for the teenagers who have heard the gospel week in and week out for years, and have in some sense piggybacked on their parents' faith. God, I pray that it would not be so, but that it would be their genuine trust and belief in Christ that you would use, that you would accomplish through the preaching of your word. I pray for visitors that are showing up and looking for a church and wondering what kind of church did they find. I pray that they find one where the banner of the cross is waved every week. I pray for the members who are struggling in various ways, maybe with their marriage, maybe with their children, maybe with a lack of a job, maybe dealing with anxiety or depression or loneliness. God, we don't want to give uh, pop advice. We want to go back to scripture and we want the gospel to transform our thinking. We want to be built up on it. So I pray that you would do so today. Do much in us through your word, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm curious what your favorite hymn is. So many good ones to choose from. You can think of some of the older hymns. I love It Is Well. 
Yeah, there we go. Got two votes on that one. I think of some newer hymns like All Glory Be to Christ. I tell you, I'm so tempted to break out in song right now. No doubt the most popular hymn would have to be one written by John Newton. Newton, if you don't know his story, before his conversion, he was the captain of a slave trading ship. Uh, And in this very popular hymn he wrote, he referred to himself as a wretch. Wretch isn't the term that you hear often. It means a despicable, vile person. And when you think about Newton's life before Christ, you think he was the captain of a slave trading ship? We would all agree that's despicable. What amazed Newton and what should amaze us is that even though he had run so far from God in his sin, God's grace ran further still, and it saved him. And Newton never got over what God did for him. So he penned this hymn that God's people have been singing for centuries since. You know it as Amazing Grace. Newton also went on to become a pastor and an author. And in his old age, he would make this quote that would become famous. He would say, while his memory was fading, he remembers two things daily. He is a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. As Paul is writing to Timothy in this passage, you can see that he hasn't gotten over what Christ did for him either. I had to look this up trying to figure out the timeline, but it had been about 30 years since Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road. But Paul kept coming back to these two foundational truths too, that he was a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. We need to keep this front and center in our minds too. We need to keep coming back to the gospel and preaching these truths to ourselves daily. There are a number of reasons why we need to do so. Let me just give you two. The first is to keep from wandering away from the truth. To keep from wandering away from the truth. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We preach the gospel to ourselves daily and to one another because our sinful hearts are prone to wander away from the truth. Paul warned against this often in Galatians 1. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. When he says let him be accursed, he's saying if anybody preaches a different gospel from what we have already preached to you, let that person be damned to hell. Paul had to warn the Galatians. The author of Hebrews warned his audience too, and you see these warnings throughout Scripture because of our sinful tendency to wander away from the truth. Sadly, we've seen this in our own church. We've seen members whose hearts have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We've seen members who have turned aside to another gospel. Don't sit here this morning thinking that will never, could never happen to you. One of Jesus' disciples in his pride thought the same thing. 
Lord, though all, right, turn on you, that he wouldn't. And Jesus had to rebuke Peter and remind him that not only was he overconfident, but even that night he would see how he would deny the Lord. There, but for the grace of God, go we. So keep preaching the gospel to yourself. Cling to the truths of God's word. Continually draw near to Christ. But here's another reason that we need to keep preaching the gospel. Not only to keep from wandering away from the truth, but because the gospel is not only how we become Christians, it is how we live as Christians. That is, the gospel is not only the front door into the Christian life, it is the very air that we breathe inside. We never move on from the gospel. School just ended, and all the parents said, homeschooling's over, yeah. You think about a first grader. They've got their first grade curriculum. They finish it. They're moving on to second grade. Different curriculum. Progressing. In the Christian life, kindergarten is the gospel. Do you know what first grade is? The gospel. Fifth grade, it's the gospel. Senior year, the gospel. PhD, it's the gospel. We keep coming back to it because this is how we live. I think of the CLI class, Money in Your Heart, having the privilege of teaching it three times. It has been so good for me. And just thinking about the ways that my heart is prone to have idols regarding money and drawn to it thinking it'll provide happiness or security or identity, right? And maybe you can relate if you think in your own heart how it can be pulled in those directions. And what do we need? More than just great advice, we need to keep going back to the gospel and allow it to change all of our thinking, including how we think about something as money. I think of the ladies' workshops yesterday. By the way, ladies, thank you for serving in the ways that you did, for all the work that went into it, all the preparation, all of the teaching. Uh, I haven't talked to my wife in two weeks. She's just been preparing for her class. And so the only time she talked to me is just like reading me her notes. I was like, oh, that's great. Okay. So thank you. Thank you. And, and I should clarify, because when I mentioned that we've been married for 20 years, I know some of you were thinking, how does a guy that looks that young, how's he been married 20 years, right? But I got to tell you, she robbed the cradle, okay? So <laughs> how we come to Christ is how we live in Christ. So we need the gospel every day. We need to keep coming back to this well that never runs dry. We need to remind ourselves daily that we are great sinners and that he is a great savior. Let's look at that. The first point there, we are great sinners. Verse 13 and 15. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And conversion testimonies can be so powerful. Rachel, thank you for giving yours this morning. That's so good. In some ways, these six short verses are a part of Paul's testimony. You know, in week one, we heard Justin introduce this book, talking about how Paul is an apostle of the gospel. Nick showed us last week this charge of the gospel ministry to teach truth and to refute error. 
And now we see as Paul is reminding Timothy of the power of the gospel to change lives. So as a young pastor facing false teachers, Timothy had a tough road ahead of him. And Paul wanted to remind him of the power of the gospel that is behind Timothy's labors. Paul is basically saying to Timothy, look at what Christ did to me. Right? If Paul's high school yearbook, I can just imagine this, Tarsus High, had a category for most likely to become a religious terrorist, you would have found Paul's picture right there. Paul wasn't just indifferent to the gospel. He was the biggest opponent of the gospel. Verse 13, he describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. A blasphemer because he spoke evil of Christ. And not only did he speak evil of Christ, he tried to get others that were following Christ to do the same. He tried to get them to recant their faith and to turn and to curse Christ. He was a persecutor. That's exactly what Christ called him on the Damascus road. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To his response, who are you, Lord? Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then lastly, we see he was an insolent opponent. Got to look that one up. Insolent. So the word insolent would mean boldly rude or disrespectful. Somehow I don't think that captures fully Paul's uh, posture towards Christians, just boldly rude and disrespectful. The New American Standard, I think, better captures it when it says a violent aggressor. In Acts 8, we see Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And Scripture says, and there arose a great persecution against the church. And then in Acts 9, referring to Paul, it says, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Literally, the, the air he breathed was murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. Paul, no doubt, looking back on his former life, saw how sinful he was. But I ask you, was Paul just considering himself, his sinfulness from what he was before Christ, or who he was even 30 years later in Christ? I think the answer to that is yes. It's both. Notice he doesn't say he was the chief of sinners. He says he is the chief of sinners. And this isn't the only passage where we see this humility from Paul. He says elsewhere to the Corinthians, he was the least of all the apostles. To the Ephesians, he said that he was the least of all the saints. Paul says, I'm the bottom of the barrel. I'm as bad as it gets. That may sound like, how could he say that? We're talking about Paul, who if we were ranking Christians, would we'd put him at the top of the list. Why would someone as close to God as Paul consider himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, the foremost of sinners? I think the answer is because he was close to God. The closer you get to the light of God's holiness, the more you see the dirt of your own sin. I was trying to explain this to my kids, and I said, if I tell you to clean your room before bedtime, right, I don't go up there right away, they're kind of smiling, like, oh, dad's going to talk about our room, I'm not going to tell them how dirty it is, okay? And then I go up there, and it's, it's, it's nighttime, right, lights are off, they're in bed, I walk in, I think, I think they cleaned up their room, right? Give them a kiss goodnight, come back in the morning, 
sun's rising, starting to break through the, the shutters, and I realize eh, it's not as clean as I thought it was, right? Sun keeps rising, open up the shutters, whoa, nope, they didn't clean. What happened? Their room was as dirty when I kissed them goodnight the previous night as it was the next morning before they even got up, but without that light piercing the room, I wasn't able to see the filth. I wasn't able to see the dirt. In college, Heidi and I were dorm supervisors. It's what most colleges call RAs. Uh, in our college, you might be called a dorm parent, dorm daddy. Uh, I did get the nickname Huff Daddy, which is stuck with me for a little while. So we would go around. We have demerits that we would write them. And so uh, you just go around their rooms. They make their bed. Nope, demerit, right? We're not asking for a whole lot. Just don't live like a slob. You've got roommates. Pick up after yourself. But at the end of every semester, there was a more thorough cleaning that was required. It was for white glove inspection, right? So now we're not talking about making your bed. We're talking about we don't want to be able to find any dirt, any scum. This place needs to be clean, clean, clean. Being a competitive guy, I was all about it. I was taking the faucet tops off with a screwdriver and cleaning them all in there. But there were some people that would say, no, my room is just fine. It's clean. But when you come in with the higher standard of the white glove, you see, no, no, it's definitely not clean. So we may fool ourselves into thinking, like, I've cleaned up my life. I'm a good person. We may even give some credit to God. Like, God's done a great work in me. That wasn't Paul. Paul definitely does attribute growth to the grace of God. But he looks inside and he sees the sin that remains. And he's humble about it. There's a little Puritan paperback called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's written by John Bunyan, and it's actually drawn from these verses. John Bunyan wrote this book and his better-known book, Pilgrim's Progress, while he was sitting in a Bedford jail for 12 years for this crime, because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. He's sitting in jail for preaching the gospel 12 years removed from his family, and he's writing a book, and the title of the book is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and he's not talking about Paul. The full title to the book is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, or a brief and faithful relation of the exceeding mercy of God in Christ to his poor servant John Bunyan. John Bunyan was viewing himself, even somebody who was given his life, rotting away in prison for Christ as the chief of sinners. If this sounds foreign to you, it's likely because we tend to grade ourselves on a curve. We look around, we think, man, I'm better than that person. Like, I know I'm not the best, I'm not perfect, but I mean, compared to this one, Jesus referred to the pride of those that would do this in Luke 18. He told a parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He talked about two men went up into the temple to pray, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector. And what was the heart posture of those two men in the temple when they were praying? The Pharisee is literally recounting to God how good he is. God, I do this and I do that and I do this. And then he even has the nerve to say, and I'm not like this guy over here. But that tax collector, in his humility, wouldn't even look up to heaven. The Bible says that he he smote his breast. And he said what? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where do you see this attitude of superiority creeping in 
for you. I've had to ask myself this question. When I'm harsh with others, when I think I'm always right, when I respond to others who are pressing in or calling out some perceived sin in my life, and my inner lawyer just jumps up in my defense. So our view of God's holiness is too low, and our view of our righteousness is too high. Isaiah was a man of God, a prophet to the people of Israel. Yet when he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, he said, high and lifted up, and the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response in seeing the Lord in his glory, in his holiness, was to say, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So whether it's Isaiah or the Apostle Paul or John Bunyan or John Newton or any others, the closer one gets to the Holy One of Israel, the more aware they are of their own sinfulness. Don't rush past this. Don't just pay this lip service. You and I are exceedingly sinful. We were before we came to Christ, and we are still so today. We are great sinners, but praise God for point number two. Christ is the great Savior. Verses 14 and 16. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 16, but I received mercy for this reason. I'm sorry, 14 through 16. Let's get 15 in there. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Why does such a sinner as, I'm sorry, what does such a sinner deserve from God. You think about Paul's life. You think about a blasphemer or a persecutor. What does he deserve from God? I appreciate how one commentator put this. He said he deserves nothing more than a smackdown from God. But don't misunderstand why he got mercy. He didn't get mercy because he deserved it. Mercy by its own definition is something not getting what you do deserve. So if it's helpful to think of grace as getting what you don't deserve, Mercy, being the flip side of that, is not getting what you do deserve. So if you get mercy, that means you didn't deserve it. So Paul's sinning in his ignorance didn't obligate God to let him off the hook. Paul himself taught the Romans that God is the potter and we are the clay. And God chooses who he will show mercy to. And there's no injustice on his part when he does so. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Why did Paul get mercy? Because God sovereignly chose to give him mercy. His ignorance didn't excuse his sin. It definitely didn't warrant God's mercy. Verse 16 spells out specifically why Paul received this mercy, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. God saved Paul so he could make him a trophy of his grace. And in very like ways, every single one of us that is a believer is a trophy of God's grace. And if you're a basketball fan, there's uh, an ongoing debate, when it'll stop, maybe never, of who's the goat, who's the greatest of all time. 
As I look out here, I can even see some of you passionately ready to respond if you were given a mic. Who, is it MJ or is it LeBron? Some of you are insulted. I even asked that question. They would say Michael Jordan has six rings, never lost in the finals. LeBron has four, right? If they have their trophy case, you'd go in, you'd say, wow, look at that, six trophies. LeBron, four trophies. I'll tell you who's the greatest of all time. You know who has the most trophies? I'm looking at about 200 of them right now. It's Jesus. I pray that I am. As a believer, you are a trophy of God's grace. That's what Paul said. He was saved so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Jesus saying, look what I did with Paul. Displaying, bragging, glorying in his mercy and his grace. When we see and think about Paul's conversion, we are also reminded that no one is beyond hope. No one is beyond God's reach. God is in the business of changing lives. That's what he does. When I think about the different vocations by the members that are represented here and the different things that you do and you're good at it, and we can have confidence if we send somebody your way for a need that they have, that you're good at your job and you're going to be able to accomplish it. God says, this is what I do. I give mercy. And he gives it to those that are undeserving of it. He gives it to those that are great sinners. And so we sing, our sins, they are many. Yes, but his mercy is more. This mercy and the overflowing grace of our Lord comes to us through the work of Christ. Through his sinless life, his atoning death on the cross, and his resurrection. If you have not turned from your sin and to Christ, I beg of you, do so today. Confess your sinfulness. Admit you, you re- need mercy that you do not deserve. And believe in Christ alone for your salvation. You haven't gone too far that his grace will not go further still. We speak of salvation, of being saved, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His very name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. But we have to answer, saved from what? The Bible teaches that we are saved for God. The Bible also clearly teaches we are saved by God. But the Bible also teaches that we are saved from God. We are saved for God. We are saved by God, but we are also saved from God. Why would we need to be saved from God? Because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Our maker is also our judge. His holiness will not allow him to overlook sin. And so for anyone who is still in their sins on that day, it will be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul told the Thessalonians that it is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is what Jesus did on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God for his sheep, for those who would believe on him. By whom we are saved and from whom we are saved are intertwined. Just think about John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We are saved by Christ through faith in him. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Sinners who don't turn from their sin into Christ are on a collision course with a holy God who hates sin. And he will by no means clear the guilty except through the gospel. This salvation from the wrath of God 
is received by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It can't be tampered with, modified, improved upon, changed, or altered in any way. To do so is to distort the gospel, to pervert the gospel, and to lose the gospel. Some who call themselves Christians would say that our justification, our being declared righteous before the Lord, is by our faith in Christ and... And I say, right at that moment, you lose the gospel. It has to be by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Jonathan Edwards said that the, we add nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. That's all we bring to the table. Paul said in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. In Romans 4, we were told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That little word alone is necessary for the gospel not to be distorted. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Please hear me loud and clearly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and this salvation is accomplished by Christ taking our sin on himself and giving us imputing to us, that is accrediting to our account, his righteousness that we receive by faith alone. The Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. He takes our sin, and by faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. We are great sinners, but Christ is a great savior. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, but through the gospel, he offers us his righteousness. We can never atone for one sin, but his blood is sufficient to cover every last one of our sins. We fail him daily, but he never fails us. We are prone to wander, but he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are unlovely, and our love waxes and wanes. But his love is never-ending, never-failing, never-changing, unconditional love. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater still. What can you say to that but, oh, what a Savior? We are great sinners. He is a great Savior. And then lastly, we're going to look at the result of a life changed by the gospel. Paul begins this passage, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul's thanking God for enlisting him, for letting him serve the Lord. Think about Paul's past. Public enemy number one of the church. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. And now here he stands, worshiping the Lord and pouring out his life and service to the church. Realize the connection between these two. To love Christ is to love his church. Christ so identifies with his church that he told Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Paul persecuting? Jesus in heaven? He was persecuting the church. Jesus says, when you do that, you're persecuting me. Your love for Christ will be shown by how you love the church. Paul wasn't a reluctant servant of the church. He thanked God for this opportunity. You didn't need to ask Paul to serve. 
right? He was here am I, send me type of person. Paul encourages Timothy that God not only saves the worst of sinners, but that he chooses to use them in his service to do great spiritual good to others. And this is what Timothy is supposed to give his life for too. Pour it out in service to the Lord through his church for the spiritual good of others. Paul tells Timothy later on, command and teach these things. Do not neglect, that, do not neglect the gift that you have. Set the believers an example. You may be thinking, we're reading a pastoral epistle. It's a pastor writing to a pastor. I don't know where this applies to me. It does. It does. The application here is for all of us. All of us have been gifted in various ways. All of us are charged with the responsibility and the opportunity to serve the Lord through his church. It may look different from Paul, and it may look different from Timothy, but we can give of ourselves to do spiritual good for one another. There are no bench players on Team Jesus, right? You got a jersey, you're in the game. While we have not been saved by good works, we have been saved for them, Ephesians 2 tells us. And then lastly, we see where all good theology leads us. What we like to say is doxology, worship. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The end result of dwelling on the gospel ought to be about how great our Savior is and, and just worship that naturally flows out from us. Paul says to the king of the ages, kings come and kings go. They build their, their kingdoms and then they fall. But our king is the king of kings. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He is the invisible God who cannot be seen because he's a spirit. But just like the wind, you can see his working unmistakably. He's not only the greatest being there is, he is the only God. Paul said to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. All other gods are imposters. If God had a Twitter handle, it would be at the real G-O-D, right? <laughs> Through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And from where the sun rises to where it sets, there is none but me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Jonathan Edwards said about this verse, as I read these words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being different from anything I ever experienced before. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God. Well, that's exactly what we get to do. We get to enjoy that God. We are great sinners, but he is a great savior. He deserves our lives of service and our never-ending worship. To him alone be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.